Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host as always, Steve Hall. You cannot see me, see me today, sorry, um, but you can hear us and that's the most important thing for the podcast. Um, Jose has had some difficulty with his visuals before, so um, you're gonna have to kind of bear with us on that, but it will be an, an amazing podcast regardless. Um, and I think most of you will know who Jose Antonio is and I am very happy to be welcomed by him. He is the founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition Associate Professor and Director of the Exercise and Sports Science Program at Nova Southern Eastern University. And he was the science editor for Muscle and Fitness Magazine, which many of you probably know about, and worked in the marketing department of MetRx and owned a coffee company, which is incredibly interesting and I think um, probably very close to a lot of uh, our listeners' hearts. <laughs> is there anything you want to add to that, Jose? No, actually, that was that was actually a, a nice introduction. It's it's funny you, you bring up the coffee company because a lot of people don't realize that for most of my professional career, I actually did not work in academics. I actually worked in the private sector, and one of wow. the the projects we had or a company I I helped start was a coffee company that had dietary supplements added to it. And uh, you know, as most people know, I love coffee. It's one of my favorite things in the world. And uh, owning a coffee company, and, and we eventually uh, 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 sold the company. This was back in 2009, um, and you know we made 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 a little bit of money off it. But uh, it was just one of my ventures that I was involved in. But now I'm uh, doing full time uh, academic uh, research at Nova Southeastern University, and also uh, helping run uh, the the business side of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. So. So that keeps me busy now, and I've been focusing a lot. And I know we've seen some of my background, but I've been focusing a lot of my sports nutrition research on uh, particularly high-protein diets, how it affects body composition, and things like that. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, fantastic with uh, the background. And actually, yeah, I didn't realize that, and it's very interesting to hear about it. But um, I think the listeners will have heard of your name and associated the high-protein research that's been going on because – uh, protein is dear to a lot of our listeners' hearts and my own heart, and a high-protein diet is something that I think most of us are on. And I think, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, you kind of associate a high-protein diet as being one gram per pound, whereas I think in the kind of literature, it might not always be that amount. Yeah, you know what? It's it's interesting. When I started, um, uh, just a little side story, the reason I got started, at least to look at this from a research standpoint, was really... I've always had these random conversations with bodybuilders, just sort of asking, hey, what do you eat? Because to me, one of the things that makes bodybuilders and physique people stand out from other athletes is they are probably the most meticulous group of people when it comes to food, much more so than any group of athletes. So I'd have conversations here and there with students of mine and you know, just, hey, what do you eat? How much do you eat? And and you know, there was a common theme, and a lot of them basically ate, I mean, they ate a lot in terms of calories, but they also ate a lot of protein. And, um, and so that brought me to this idea that when you look at the literature of what most clinical scientists view as high protein, you start doing the math and you're thinking, wow, that's actually not high at all. And in fact, most of the literature that uses the term higher protein diet or high protein diet isn't even high. We're talking... You know, if we use, uh, if you look at uh, grams per kilo, we're talking, you know, I've seen definitions as, you know, 1.2 grams per kilo per day of protein as being high. And I'm like, that's that's actually not high. Um, and then, uh, you know, maybe as high as 1.5 or 1.6 being high. And again, to me, that's just not high. If anything, 
uh, it's quite low for athletes. So what I've done, and in fact, um, I just finished writing a review paper on high protein diets, and and I've always operationally defined it as, you know, basically a gram per pound if you want to use the imperial units, or uh, or 2.2 grams per kilo, roughly in that range. Mm-hmm. That's when. Some, that's how I define high, and I think that actually should be the baseline for most, not only athletes, but most physique, uh, uh, you know, bodybuilders and physique competitors. So um, once we, once I get enough people to agree with me on the 2.2 grams per kilo, one gram per pound, then oftentimes we're just arguing about what high is. It's yeah. like, you know, let's agree to the definition. Then we can decide whether it's good for you, bad for you, or, or has a neutral effect. So, um, but yeah, it's... Um, What's it, I, after writing this paper, what I found fascinating was there are actually very, very few studies that have used high protein intakes. Right. Um, not many at all. In fact, God, maybe a dozen or so. So it, it's really interesting. No, it's, it is fascinating. And I know um, you've been, you haven't had many long-term studies, but I think you have had one. I don't know how far it is through now. Um, you had the one-year uh, high-protein study. I don't know how many months you're into that now. How's that going? Yeah, we, um, we and in fact, what's interesting about these studies is they've gone through evolution. The, the initial study was, let's just give a bunch of people to work out two grams, uh, two grams of protein per pound body weight or 4.4 grams per kilo. And we found nothing happened, despite the fact that a, <clears throat> a lot of protein. In fact, um, a, lot, a lot of the research subjects compa- complained about being hot and sweaty all the time because, oh, yeah. as you know, the, the thermic effect of protein. So what we did was we narrowed the population uh, of who we studied down to, you know, serious to semi-serious physique people, you know, recreational bodybuilders. But we dropped the dose to something like 3.3 to 3.4 grams per kilo, which is much more doable. Um, less people dropped out, and we found that if you change one's training regimen, you know, make it more of a traditional bodybuilding training regimen, and eat a high-protein diet, you'll gain lean body mass, but to me, the more interesting finding was that you actually lost more fat mass on the higher protein. Um, But then, the follow-up question is, okay, two months of doing this, okay, is it safe? Hmm. Well, we decided, let's follow the most, um, I guess, how would I describe it, the most dedicated group of guys, and again, these were uh, bodybuilders of all types, I mean, some were actually quite their physique was quite developed. Others were more sort of recreational bodybuilders, but they were very serious about training. And we followed them for an entire year, and we found no um, no side effects in terms of kidney function, liver function, um, nothing at all. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And and we 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 are also following a subgroup of these guys, the ones who are the, sort of the most serious. We followed them for two years. We're going to go into the third year, and this will probably be our last last year. But after two years, again, nothing. I mean, and they're averaging, I'd say about three grams per kilo uh, per day of protein. So I don't know where people get this idea. I mean, I sort of have an idea, but where they get this idea that uh, you know high protein diets uh, cause harm. But we have we've found no evidence showing that. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's great, and I guess it's. I mean, it's great just all round for general population because I know within kind of around the UK and in the supermarkets here, things are being labeled as high protein and people are seeing that as kind of a, a good thing and as a healthy thing. And I think that is becoming more well known and the kind of almost becoming a myth of the issues that with the liver and the kidneys and things nowadays, which is really positive, I think. Yeah, you know, that's great. And 
and I think what's interesting is like, you know, you and I and people like us, we tend to, we tend to be around people who already believe this. Why? Because they've gone through periods where they eat a lot of protein or they work with athletes where they eat a lot of protein. But what's interesting is once we sort of step out of the, the group of people we associate with, it's a rather uncommon view. And in fact, I'll just give you a, a quick sidebar story. I was, I submitted a research proposal. Um, I can't really tell you which university <laughs> because then they would know. But at a university I worked at, and uh, and on these institutional review boards, and I think in the UK they call them ethics committees. Right. They, uh, one of the physicians, and it's always a physician. I don't know why, but one of the physicians said, if all these people are going to eat this much protein, it's going to probably cause harm to their kidneys. Um, and that's not the first time that's happened. So we're talking someone who's educated who otherwise still has this very odd belief about protein. And it's it's still quite common outside of the sports science or sports nutrition field to have that view. And in fact, if I talk to the average nurse, they'll say the same thing. The average physician, they'll say the same thing. The average dietitian, they'll say the same thing. That it causes this harm, which, you know, it's and it's kind of interesting. So, you know, people say, well, if you eat protein, you got get you have to eliminate the urea via the kidneys, you know, so you got to urinate it out and it makes, you know, makes the kidneys work harder, which I've always thought is a, biz is a bizarre and very um, sophomoric argument because then, you know, that's what physicians used to think back in the 1960s when they said, you know, if you exercise too much, it's bad for your heart because, you know, your heart has to work harder. Well, of course your heart has to work harder. That's how you adapt, yeah. you know, and your kidneys are quite well adapted to to filtering what it needs to filter from eating a lot of protein. So it's just really weird. It's really weird. It is definitely a weird view. And just to say, if you hear any loud noises, there is currently a massive thunderstorm that's just happening now. Um, <laughs> so the, the heat wave we've had in Europe is now culminating in this huge storm, for which is kind of good because that will be great. Um, cool your heat's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of something I did want to dig into, and this is specifically, I think, going to help potentially some physique competitors, and some of them have been kind of using your research and putting it into practice. And I have a kind of quote that I've seen a few maybe coaches saying in that um, they've used very high protein diets kind of on top of their client's normal carbohydrate and fat intake in that they don't change anything to the fat and carb intake. They just raise protein calories obviously then come up and they're still seeing no kind of excessive fat gain even though the calories are being jacked up um, and this is kind of very similar to what you have seen within your studies and I don't know if you're ever any further in knowing where this is kind of being attributed to whether it is all thermic effective feeding or whether it's um, the non-exercise activity thermogenesis I don't know if you're any further along with that yeah we've um Looking at the mechanisms of that, um, it, it's, it's fairly difficult because measuring non-exercise activity thermogenesis is hard to do because you have to have subjects. I, there are devices actually that you could wear that you'd have have research subjects, have them wear it, and it can estimate basically you know, um, uh, their, their activity levels, let's say, over hours or days. Um, but the idea, and this is interesting, the idea of just adding protein to one's total energy intake without changing carbs or fat um, and not having a gain in fat mass, that was one of the initial findings we found in our mm. studies a few years back. Now, if the goal is to gain lean body mass, I'd say that's probably the best thing to do. If, if the goal is to increase fat loss, 
to me, an isocaloric substitution of protein with a removal or, or, or lessening of carbohydrate and fat intake would probably be the best strategy. Um, again, for physique athletes. So, but I, you know, I always say it's hard to go wrong with just adding more protein. And, and in all of our studies, we basically just made subjects consume a lot of whey because it was the easiest thing to do. And it wasn't like these people were eating more chicken or more steak just because it's virtually, unless you're like a professional eater, it's virtually impossible to eat that much protein. It's just hard. And, mm. and, and these subjects, they would often, not often, but they would somewhat complain. They're like, you know what? At first, you know, I thought it'd be easy to eat this much, but after a while, it becomes work. It's, it becomes a, 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 quite a task just to hit, you know, a certain high protein goal if you're not used to it. So they end up, you know, they just drink shakes even when they're not hungry. So, you know, it's really kind of interesting. Absolutely. But the mechanist, yeah, the mechanistic reasons, um, we're still not sure. In fact, um, uh, just sort of as a sidebar discussion, we actually looked at high protein intakes to see if it affected sleep just because, you know, there's all this new data showing that you need to sleep to recover, mm -hmm. et cetera. And we found that whether it was higher or lower protein intake, it actually had no effect on sleep, uh, sleep duration or sleep quality. So it's not working through sleep. I know that. That's good to know because, yeah, I've, I've been looking into sleep a little bit more and more research is coming out about how important sleep is. So it's good that high protein doesn't implicate sleep in any way because that would be, yeah, that would be kind of counteracting one another in some ways for a bodybuilder because they obviously need their sleep now. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, so something you touched on there that I thought was great is uh, you talked about whey protein and, and within your studies, is this has been what you've been using, correct? Or have you trialed yes. any other sources? Well, it's funny. Uh, we actually did. Initially, we did try other sources. Um, and the, <laughs> the source we tried was actually beef protein, beef protein powder. Oh. Uh, yeah. And sort of to make a long story short, we couldn't give that stuff away. <laughs> we, <laughs> we're like, hey, we got tubs of beef protein powder. And they're like, uh, no, do you have any way? No one would take it. I was like giving it to people. I'm like, here, take it. Take some tubs. And they like, no, uh, no one would take it. We had tubs of beef protein powder sitting in our lab probably for three years. Wow. <laughs> for three years. And finally, some poor undergrad students said, hey, I'll take it. I mean, if no one's going to take it, I'll take it. It's food, and I'm poor. And I'm like, hey, take as much as you want because I can't give this stuff away. But, but yeah, for the most part, it's been almost all whey protein, and, and that's because it's – probably the most palatable source and, mm. and really it's perhaps at least you know there's mo more research done on whey protein than any other uh, form of protein and it's it's one of the best forms you could consume mm -hmm. and do you think that has any impact for kind of high protein diets do you think people need to use a whey protein do you think they could get the same sort of benefits from just eating more pro lean protein sources yeah you know that's actually a good question um i think from a pragmatic or practical point of view Pro, whey protein in the form of you know a shake or protein powder, I think pragmatically makes the most sense. Um, having talked to a lot of these guys and girls in these studies, they would tell you straight up there's no way they could do the amount of protein they do on chicken or fish or beef. Even as much as they love those sources, they just couldn't accomplish the task that way. Um, so I don't know if we could even do a study where we would look at alternative sources of, of like let's say whole foods just because I don't think we get enough subjects, one, to volunteer for it, and two, who, who could actually comply with it. And as you know, particularly in the physique, physique world, compliance is everything. If you can't yeah. comply with the diet, then you know, forget it. So, so yeah, I, don't, I mean, it's a good, interesting scientific question, but 
But in terms of any practicality, I'm not sure it would be worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. I guess the reason I'd ask is because obviously these people are struggling to consume that much protein. But if we're, if I was to ask a, a kind of a bodybuilder who's maybe 10 weeks out from a show or five weeks out from a show and they're, they're starving, they do whatever they could to eat as much as they would like. Um, I, I think it's sounding almost like protein's almost like a free food or something. They could just jack their protein levels up and they'd see no, no detriment. I just want to, you're not saying that, are you? Oh yeah, in fact, what you're, you're bringing up actually, you're putting more context to the question. So yeah. under those circumstances, then I'd say yes, then, then because in a sense, I like the term, it's, it's a free food, then yeah, eat as much chicken or fish or as beef as you can because you're cutting back on you know typically carbs and fat. So in that case, getting food in your gut and not being hungry all the time I think is critically important and let's face it you know these physique uh, you know I've been around especially some of these physique girls they get really grumpy here's yeah. the end <laughs> it's like eat something you gotta <laughs> eat something you know? <laughs> so if we're thinking of as a physique competitor when we are dieting down to lean levels maybe having a higher protein intake is something that we can really utilize to our advantage when, I mean, there becomes a time, it doesn't matter how much you eat, you're hungry because your body fat levels are too low, but um, yes. the high protein intakes could massively help adherence and just overall psychologically just being able to eat more. Um, and I guess that's a really useful tool for not only competitors, but for coaches, if their clients are complaining they're hungry, then maybe um, you can actually include a few extra grams of, well, 10, 20 grams of extra protein, which might not actually have a detriment to their overall kind of fat loss going towards the stage. Is that what you think could happen? Yeah, I think actually that would be a great piece of advice. You know, if they just want to, you know, for satiety reason, you know, you don't want to be hungry all the time that, you know, if they get an extra 20 grams, whether it's in the form of steak or chicken or fish or pork, I think is a great strategy just because you're doing, you're trying anything you can to alleviate, you know, the extreme hunger that comes with caloric deprivation. So I think it's an excellent strategy. Awesome. And in terms of your current research that you're doing now, is and I know you said you were just finalizing some, some things, is there anything exciting going on that you can kind of uh, tell the listeners and myself? Yeah, in fact, um, we I just submitted a paper. We wrapped up a study in female athletes. Um, we followed them for well, about a year. And we, let's see, on average, they were consuming... Uh, about 2.3 grams per kilo of protein uh, per day over the course of a year. And the primary reason we follow these uh, female athletes is um, is one of the, you know, I call it a myth, but, you know, apparently there's a lot of people who believe it. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the myths surrounding protein intake, particularly in women, is that it promotes bone demineralization. So, you know, your bone density will drop because, you, because protein intake is animal sources of protein, you know, uh, they they're, they have these acidic precursors, et cetera, et cetera. So it leaches calcium from your bones. And after one year, and, and these are, you know, these are pretty well-trained girls. Some of them are, um, are collegiate athletes. So some track and field athletes, distance runners, recreational bodybuilders. Um, there was no change at all in bone mineral density of the whole body. And also no change in bone mineral density of the lumbar spine. And in fact, there were a few people where lumbar spine bone mineral density actually went up. Hmm. Um, which is kind of interesting. So, it, it, and sort of as a sidebar, there are a couple girls um, <laughs> who normally, and you might find this shocking, who normally this is their normal day. It's not even their high protein day. Their normal day is four grams per kilo. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah which I'm thinking, 
even if you're light, even if you only weigh 130 pounds, getting four grams per kilo is still a lot. I mean, people are like, oh, well, they're little girls. Of course they can get four grams <laughs> per kilo. No, if you're little, you just can't eat as much. And so I looked specifically at a couple of the subjects who are, who are well over the three grams per kilo mark, and they're fine. I mean, these girls are lean, they're athletic, bones are healthy. In fact, some of these girls, their bone mineral density was up there with some guys. I mean, so, you know, it's... <laughs> This is one of those things that you know, I, can, I can imagine when this gets published, there will be people on social media who will say, well, one year is just not enough. You got to <laughs> do a study. If you do a 10-year study, then watch. These girls, they'll lose bone. <laughs> and, you know, I, no one's going to do a 10-year study. Um, I mean, all you can do if you want to look at long-term, uh, sort of long-term effects is just compare groups of people. Do a cross-sectional study where you compare you know, women who eat a lot of protein versus women who don't. And obviously, there will be problems with that because women, and not just women, but men, who typically will eat a higher protein diet also typically exercise. Women and men who don't typically eat a higher protein diet probably don't exercise. So there's all these confounding variables. But at least we know that if you consume a lot of protein, it doesn't have a negative effect on bone. And I think that's one of, you know, the bone thing and the kidney thing. Those mm -hmm. are the two most popular myths that are promoted by a lot of clinical nutritionists. And, you know, we could put that one to rest. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know if you're anywhere closer to finding if there's like a, an upper end to protein intake. I guess as long as you're getting sufficient um, fat and carbohydrates and your diet overall is looking good is there an upper limit to how much protein you can eat is that is, yeah. or is the upper limit kind of how much you can actually get in you because uh, <laughs> you know, like you'll just be stuffed <laughs> right that actually is an excellent question you know what is, is there is there an upper limit in fact um if you talk there's if you talk to certain scientists they actually most scientists now that i think about it they tend to put a limit like they call it well it's a limit based on their interpretation of the data so mm -hmm. let's say some scientists say well if you look at the data and let's focus on uh measures of muscle protein synthesis or uh, measures of lean body mass if you look at the data it seems that the preponderance of data suggests that anything above 1.6 grams per kilo per day will not result in an increase in lean body mass um and the reason, and so some people will purposely say, okay, once you hit 1.6, that's it, you're good. But the problem with that reasoning, and again, you have to look at this pragmatically, is if you're not eating protein, you're eating carbs, fat, or alcohol, which, and we can eliminate alcohol, we're assuming that people actually eat well. Mm -hmm. So, should a physique athlete say, you know what, I hit my 1.6, I think I'll just eat more carbs and fat? And the answer to that is, of course, not. I mean, if the goal is physique, it makes more sense to to hit a high protein intake and then backfill the rest of your diet with carbs and fat because and here's why ultimately physique athletes aren't performing at tasks they're not trying to finish first second or third they're not trying to lift the most weight they're just trying to look really pretty and looking pretty is more of a function of dietary protein than carbs or fat now if you were a performance athlete obviously you you don't want to ratchet down you know carb intake in particular uh, particularly so i think it's uh you know, it's 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 a mistake to take what I call the minimalist approach. There's a lot of scientists who will take, well, let's let's stick to 1.6, and anything beyond that is a waste. Well, not really, because you still have to eat food. I mean, mm -hmm. What are you gonna eat if you don't? If you stop at 1.6 grams per kilo, 
Okay, now what are you going to eat? More bread? More potatoes? What, more broccoli? You'll be sick of broccoli, you know? Um, so if you're a strict, if you interpret scientific data strictly, you may not be where I am in terms of, because I don't interpret it strictly. I take a very practical approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 2.2 grams per kilo to me is the baseline because there's no there's no harmful there's no bad outcome that comes from that. Some people stick to the 1.6 gram per kilo because they say, well, scientifically, there's not much evidence to show that anything beyond that helps. Well, there is data showing that anything above that will help you lose fat. It may not help you gain muscle, but it help you lose fat, mm-hmm. which for a physique athlete is critically important. And I think. Too many scientists focus so much on the muscle part, not the fat loss part, when in fact, you can actually look better on stage without gaining muscle just by losing fat. You know, it's all about creating an illusion on stage. Um, you know, so uh, again, I always say take the pragmatic approach and see what works best. Mm-hmm. And this is actually something I've heard you talk about before, which I love, in that you uh, spoke about having protein post-workout. And your view on it was kind of, again, quite pragmatic and different to what many other people are like, where they say, well, you don't need to have protein post-workout, so don't. Whereas you have quite a different view to that, don't you? Yeah, you know, it's funny. The the the, uh, <laughs> the discussions about post-workout uh, protein intake, to me, have sort of been the most, um, um, I guess, uh, argumentative. You know, there are people, and it's weird, it's sort of gone one side to the other where, uh, one side is like, you have to have that post-workout protein. The other side is, it's a total waste. You don't need it. Well, <laughs> it's certainly not a total waste, and there's two ways to look at it. The first question I ask you know, I give this when I give this talk to an audience is, number one, is there ever an advantage to not eating? Ever. In the history of physique sports, is there ever an advantage to not eating? And everyone's like, well, of course not. So then I would say, what's the purpose of skipping your post-workout protein shake? And of course, <laughs> there is no purpose because it, it confers zero advantage. So, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, it makes sense that you got that you should consume protein post workout because one, it adds to the total daily protein intake, which people argue is the number one issue, mm-hmm. which is true. Total daily protein intake is important, but again, you have to space out your protein, and this is where you know you could call it nutrient timing or you could call it protein distribution, but in the end. It's based on when you eat, which technically is still timing, you know, you know, because for instance, someone might say, well, what if I just eat all my protein at breakfast? Well, of course, that's stupid. (laughs) You don't want to eat all the protein in one meal and certainly not in two meals. It makes more sense to spread it out, at least when you look at the when you look at the protein distribution data. Mm -hmm. But I, I certainly think the worst thing you can do as a physique athlete is to skip a meal and not consuming something post workout makes absolutely no sense. So. Um, it's an opportunity to feed. And if you can feed, then it's in, in the long run, it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. And when your, your recommendation, do you have recommendations for nutritional timing for protein? How do you like to see that spread through the day? Well, I think in general for physique athletes, um, I look at it this way, have your three main meals, so breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then have, have uh, two snacks interspersed in there. And, right. and typically one could be a nighttime snack and the other could be a midday snack. Um, depending on where you know where your uh, where your training or where your workout is, and then obviously when you work out, have that protein shake post workout. So if you if you include the post workout protein, the three meals and the two and the two snacks, technically you're you're eating six times a day, and it's just it's just good to distribute it because I think it it it, it provides sort of this constant stream of amino acids that your body needs for 
you know, muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. And I like the way you laid that out because a lot of people, I think, look at it or hear it and they're like, oh, like five to six feedings of protein. That sounds excessive. But when you say it's three meals, two snacks and a post-workout shake, it's like, well, actually, that's pretty practical and probably quite easy for a lot of people who train. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think we've covered off an amazing amount for physique athletes. I think there's some amazing practical takeaways. Um, I want to thank you for that. And I think the audience will thank you for it. Do you have anything in the future that you're kind of look, you want to get into or you haven't got into yet or things that you have currently going on? Yeah, actually we, uh, we just started a study and you'll find this interesting because it deals with, uh, uh, body composition and, um, there's a, um, there's a gene. I don't know if you've heard of the FTO gene. It's the fat mass and obesity associated oh. gene. People who carry the gene, um, have a predisposition to basically, you know, having fat, uh, more fat mass, and there's a, a relationship between having the gene and, and obesity. So, what we've done is, uh, in fact, we're in the middle of the study now. We've gotten a group of male and female athletes. You know, they range from track and field to bodybuilding to uh, we have uh, some paddlers um, um, and recreational exercises, but they're all active, and we're going to genotype them to see if they carry the gene. Uh, the FTO gene. In addition to that, so once we genotype them, they're going to go on a hypocaloric diet. So then they're going to cut their calories by 25%, uh, which sounds easy, but it's not. <laughs> they're always hungry. Yeah. And we're going to see if after four weeks of this, uh, cutting their calories by 25%, but maintaining high protein intake, about a gram per pound again, to see if there's a difference in fat mass loss between the group that carries the gene and the group that does not have the gene. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll have that data probably later this year, but we want to see if there's a, uh, an influence of you know, genotype uh, or genes and, and if it affects fat loss when, when two groups of people are given the, uh, the same kind of diet. You know, meaning, mm -hmm. regardless of your genes, can you override it by engaging in a certain behavior? Right. Is that all it is? Because you know, there are people who say, well, you know, you know, uh, genetically I'm predisposed to this, which in fact could be true. You might be predisposed to maybe eating more or being fat, but it doesn't mean you can't eat better and exercise more. So, mm -hmm. so, but we'll see. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're I'm delving a lot into, you know, the, 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 the role of genotype or genes and how it affects body composition and athletic performance. So, so that'll, you know, that'll be a project we'll be doing all year. Uh, later on, also, we're going to look at, and this is one of the, in fact, this is one of the topics that one of my friends is always bringing up when we talk about protein, and she's always saying, you know, the one area where high protein intakes might be harmful, you might want to look at, is whether it affects the uh, gut microbiome. Ah, yes. And so, I have a student who might pursue that as part of her doctoral dissertation, and, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on gut physiology or the gut microbiome. But it is kind of interesting that maybe it has a negative effect. Now the question is, is that negative effect manifested clinically in something that's measurable? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I don't know. Is it manifested in something that affects athletic performance? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I doubt it, but I really don't know. Um, but we're going to look at it because, you know, as of this point, I haven't found any harmful effects of a high-protein diet. But it would be interesting if it did affect the gut microbiome because then how would that change the way people eat? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of fun to think about. 
No, definitely. I think that's really interesting. Just like sleep. Um, although yeah. I think more is known about sleep. The gut microbiome is becoming an area that people are getting more and more interested in. So that would be really cool to hear about. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be it'll be fun. We got a lot of cool projects. And another one, which is an un, unrelated to protein, we're looking at mixed martial arts fighters um, to see what effect HMB supplementation has on them. So oh. one of my colleagues, yeah, Dr. Corey Peacock, he's he's helping with that investigation. So yeah, we do a lot of fun stuff in the lab, and uh, and it's not all protein, but we <laughs> we certainly focus a lot on protein. Amazing. And yeah. I know I think you've got you got an event in London, uh, not in London, maybe, but in the UK soon. I think I saw that on Facebook. Yes, yes. And in fact, we're going to have a um, it's basically a one and a half day workshop on. In fact, this is right up your alley on training and nutrition for body composition. Oh, yes. It's uh, it's September 22nd and 23rd. Uh, it's at the Doubletree Hilton uh, somewhere in London. I haven't God, it's been so many years since I've been to London. I have no idea where this is, but I won't be there. But a lot of my colleagues will be there. And again, the focus is just on body composition. So um, they're going to cover a lot of the topics that I've covered with you today, and it should be interesting, particularly for those who who love the physique sports. Mm -hmm. No, amazing. And I think I, I saw it. And I, if I'm free on those dates, I think I'm going to be there. So yeah, I think a lot of the listeners, if it, uh, we've got a lot of UK based listeners. So if you're interested in that as well, which I th I'm sure they will be, um, then put that in your diary and make sure you're there. Um, in terms of if people want to reach out to you, Jose, or find more of your work, I know you've got your own uh, ISSN scoop, which is great with yes. lots of your own writing on and also your Instagram is really good with really clear infographics over there is there anywhere else you think people should be looking for you yeah no, I like you know a lot of people like the infographics you put on Instagram again the Instagram address is the uh, underscore ISSN the ISSN and also on Facebook um, it's we have a ISSN uh, group discussion page on Facebook that a lot of people actually post, uh, you know, original studies uh, on sports nutrition and exercise training there. It's a great place. The, the, the discussions are, for the most part, civil. No one gets too crazy, but there's always a few crazy ones. <laughs> although, although I have found that if you want crazy people, most of them are on Twitter or, or Instagram. So <laughs> they can be quite mean on those uh, platforms. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but if anyone needs to reach out to me, I'm, I, I can be reached through the ISSN website. Uh, the web address is issn.net that's issn.net perfect and i'll make sure that's all linked below so people can find you and um hopefully not treat you badly and only say kind things <laughs> i think people get very caught up especially when they see the infographics and they don't fully understand maybe what you're trying to say well you know it's funny I i'm glad you brought up the infographics because what i what i found with uh, uh instagram is i guess there are people who think that me i'm the personal i'm their personal research assistant and that I have to find everything for them. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I put enough information there that you could actually find this information yourself, but yeah. apparently it upsets a lot of people. They're like, well, just tell me where it is. <laughs> like, My God, can't anyone find anything these days? <laughs> yeah, no, it, you can't just reply Google it. People get quite offended when you do that. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I want to thank you again, Jose, for coming on the show. I know the audience are going to have really enjoyed it. I do want to welcome any questions that people might have um, because I might have to drag you back on, Jose, if they've got some okay. interesting questions for you. Uh, and uh, I just want to say thank you again and thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks, Stephen. I appreciate it. I had a good time. <laughs>